The north half of the range is mostly covered with floods of lava and dotted with volcanoes and craters, some of them recent and perfect in form, others in various stages of decay. The south half is composed of granite nearly from base to summit, while a considerable number of peaks in the middle of the range are capped with metamorphic slates, among which are Mounts Dana and Gibbs to the east of Yosemite Valley. Mount Whitney, the culminating point of the range near its southern extremity, lifts its helmet-shaped crest to a height of nearly 14,700 feet. Mount Shasta, a colossal volcanic cone, rises to a height of 14,440 feet at the northern extremity and forms a noble landmark for all the surrounding region within a radius of a hundred miles. Residual masses of volcanic rocks occur throughout most of the granitic southern portion also, and a considerable number of old volcanoes on the flanks, especially along the eastern base of the range near Mono Lake and southward. But it is only to the northward that the entire range from base to summit is covered with lava. From the summit of Mount Whitney, only granite is seen. Innumerable peaks and spires, but little lower than its own storm-beaten crags, rise in groups like forest trees, in full view, segregated by canyons of tremendous depth and ruggedness. On Shasta, nearly every feature in the vast view speaks of the old volcanic fires. Far to the northward, in Oregon, the icy volcanoes of Mount Pitt and the Three Sisters rise above the dark evergreen woods. Southward, innumerable smaller craters and cones are distributed along the axis of the range and on each flank. Of these, Lassen's Butte is the highest, being nearly 11,000 feet above sea level. Miles of its flanks are reeking and bubbling with hot springs, many of them so boisterous and sulfurous they seem over-ready to become spouting geysers like those of the Yellowstone. The cinder cone, near, marks the most recent volcanic eruption in the Sierra. It is a symmetrical truncated cone about 700 feet high, covered with gray cinders and ashes, and has a regular unchanged crater on its summit, in which a few small two-leaved pines are growing. These show that the age of the cone is not less than 80 years. It stands between two lakes, which a short time ago were one. Before the cone was built, a flood of rough vesicular lava was poured into the lake, cutting it in two, and, overflowing its banks, the fiery flood advanced into the pine woods, overwhelming the trees in its way, the charred ends of some of which may still be seen projecting from beneath the snout of the lava stream where it came to rest. Later still there was an eruption of ashes and loose obsidian cinders, probably from the same vent, which, besides forming the cinder cone, scattered a heavy shower over the surrounding woods for miles to a depth of from six inches to several feet. The history of this last Sierra eruption is also preserved in the traditions of the Pitt River Indians. They tell of a fearful time of darkness, when the sky was black with ashes and smoke that threatened every living thing with death and that when at length the sun appeared once more, it was red like blood. Less recent craters in great numbers roughen the adjacent region, some of them with lakes in their throats, 
others overgrown with trees and flowers. Nature in these old hearths and firesides having literally given beauty for ashes. On the northwest side of Mount Shasta there is a subordinate cone about 3,000 feet below the summit, which has been active subsequent to the breaking up of the main ice cap that once covered the mountain, as is shown by its comparatively unwasted crater and the streams of unglaciated lava radiating from it. The main summit is about a mile and a half in diameter, bounded by small crumbling peaks and ridges, among which we seek in vain for the outlines of the ancient crater. These ruinous masses and the deep glacial grooves that flute the sides of the mountain show that it has been considerably lowered and wasted by ice. How much we have no sure means of knowing. Just below the extreme summit, hot sulfurous gases and vapor issue from irregular fissures, mixed with spray derived from melting snow, the last feeble expression of the mighty force that built the mountain. Not in one great convulsion was Shasta given birth. The crags of the summit and the sections exposed by the glaciers down the sides display enough of its internal framework to prove that comparatively long periods of quiescence intervened between many distinct eruptions, during which the cooling lavas ceased to flow and became permanent additions to the bulk of the growing mountain. With alternate haste and deliberation, eruption succeeded eruption till the old volcano surpassed even its present sublime height. Standing on the icy top of this, the grandest of all the fire mountains of the Sierra, we can hardly fail to look forward to its next eruption. Gardens, vineyards, homes have been planted confidingly on the flanks of volcanoes, which, after remaining steadfast for ages, have suddenly blazed into violent action and poured forth overwhelming floods of fire. It is known that more than a thousand years of cool calm have intervened between violent eruptions. Like gigantic geysers spouting molten rock instead of water, volcanoes work and rest, and we have no sure means of knowing whether they are dead when still or only sleeping. Along the western base of the range, a telling series of sedimentary rocks containing the early history of the Sierra are now being studied. But leaving for the present these first chapters, we see that only a very short geological time ago, just before the coming on of that winter of winters called the Glacial Period, a vast deluge of molten rocks poured from many a chasm and crater on the flanks and summit of the range filling lake basins and river channels and obliterating nearly every existing feature on the northern portion. At length, these all-destroying floods ceased to flow. But while the great volcanic cones built up along the axis still burned and smoked, the whole Sierra passed under the domain of ice and snow. Then, over the bald, featureless, fire-blackened mountains, glaciers began to crawl, covering them from the summits to the sea with a mantle of ice. And then, with infinite deliberation, the work went on of sculpturing the range anew. These mighty agents of erosion, halting never through unnumbered centuries, crushed and ground the flinty lavas and granites beneath their crystal folds, wasting and building until in the fullness of time the Sierra was born again, brought to light nearly as we behold it today, 
with glaciers and snow-crushed pines at the top of the range, wheat fields and orange groves at the foot of it. This change from icy darkness and death to life and beauty was slow, as we count time, and is still going on north and south over all the world wherever glaciers exist, whether in the form of distinct rivers, as in Switzerland, Norway, the mountains of Asia, and the Pacific coast, or in continuous mantling folds, as in portions of Alaska, Greenland, Franz Josef Land, Nova Zembla, Spitsbergen, and the lands about the South Pole. But in no country, as far as I know, may these majestic changes be studied to better advantage than in the plains and mountains of California. Toward the close of the glacial period, when the snow clouds became less fertile and the melting waste of sunshine became greater, the lower folds of the ice sheet in California, discharging fleets of icebergs into the sea, began to shallow and recede from the lowlands, and then moved slowly up the flanks of the Sierra in compliance with the changes of climate. The great white mantle of the mountains broke up into a series of glaciers more or less distinct and river-like, with many tributaries, and these again were melted and divided into still smaller glaciers, until now only a few of the smallest residual topmost branches of the grand system exist on the cool slopes of the summit peaks. Plants and animals, biding their time, closely followed the retiring ice, bestowing quick and joyous animation on the newborn landscapes. Pine trees marched up the sun-warmed moraines in long hopeful files, taking the ground and establishing themselves as soon as it was ready for them. Brown-spiked sedges fringed the shores of the newborn lakes. Young rivers roared in the abandoned channels of the glaciers. Flowers bloomed around the feet of the great burnished domes while with quick fertility mellow beds of soil settling and warming offered food to the multitudes of nature's waiting children, great and small, animals as well as plants, mice, squirrels, marmots, deers, bears, elephants, etc. The ground burst into bloom with magical rapidity, and the young forests into birdsong. Life in every form, warming and sweetening and growing richer as the years passed away over the mighty Sierra, so lately suggestive of death and consummate desolation only. It is hard, without long and loving study, to realize the magnitude of the work done on these mountains during the last glacial period by glaciers, which are only streams of closely compacted snow crystals. Careful study of the phenomena presented goes to show that the pre-glacial condition of the range was comparatively simple, one vast wave of stone in which a thousand mountains, domes, canyons, ridges, etc. lay concealed. And in the development of these, nature chose for a tool not the earthquake, or lightning to rend and split asunder, nor the stormy torrent or eroding rain but the tender snow-flowers noiselessly falling through unnumbered centuries, the offspring of the sun and sea. Laboring harmoniously in united strength, they crushed and ground and wore away the rocks in their march, making vast beds of soil, 
and at the same time developed and fashioned the landscapes into the delightful variety of hill and dale and lordly mountain that mortals call beauty. Perhaps more than a mile in average depth has the range been thus degraded during the last glacial period, a quantity of mechanical work almost inconceivably great. And our admiration must be excited again and again as we toil and study and learn that this vast job of rock work, so far-reaching in its influences, was done by agents so fragile and small as are these flowers of the mountain clouds. Strong only by force of numbers, they carried away entire mountains, particle by particle, block by block, and cast them into the sea. Sculptured, fashioned, modeled all the range, and developed its predestined beauty. All these new Sierra landscapes were evidently predestined, for the physical structure of the rocks on which the features of the scenery depend was acquired while they lay at least a mile deep below the pre-glacial surface. And it was while these features were taking form in the depths of the range, the particles of the rocks marching to their appointed places in the dark with reference to the coming beauty, that the particles of icy vapor in the sky marching to the same music assembled to bring them to the light. Then, after their grand task was done, these bands of snow flowers, these mighty glaciers, were melted and removed as if of no more importance than dew destined to last but an hour. Few, however, of nature's agents have left monuments so noble and enduring as they. The great granite domes a mile high, the canyons as deep, the noble peaks, the Yosemite valleys, these and indeed nearly all other features of the Sierra scenery are glacier monuments. Contemplating the works of these flowers of the sky, one may easily fancy them endowed with life, messengers sent down to work in the mountain mines on errands of divine love. Silently flying through the darkened air, swirling, glinting to their appointed places, they seem to have taken counsel together, saying, Come, we are feeble, let us help one another. We are many, and together we will be strong. Marching in close deep ranks, let us roll away the stones from these mountain sepulchres, and set the landscapes free. Let us uncover these clustering domes. Here, let us carve a lake basin, there a Yosemite valley, here a channel for a river with fluted steps and brows for the plunge of songful cataracts. Yonder, let us spread broad sheets of soil that man and beast may be fed, and here pile trains of boulders for pines and giant sequoias. Here, make ground for a meadow, there for a garden and grove making it smooth and fine for small daisies and violets and beds of healthy bryanthus, spicing it well with crystals, garnet feldspar, and zircon. Thus and so on it has oftentimes seemed to me sang and planned and labored the hardy snowflower crusaders, and nothing that I can write can possibly exaggerate the grandeur and beauty of their work. Like morning mist, they have vanished in sunshine, all save the few small companies that still linger on the coolest mountainsides, and, as residual glaciers, are still busily at work completing the last of the lake basins, the last beds of soil, and the sculpture of some of the highest peaks.
End of chapter 1 The Sierra Nevada